Welcome to Conversations. And now, from Los Angeles, here's your host, Mike Dowler. Thank you, Sean from Los Angeles. It's Mike Downer, and this is Conversations Radio. We're late, <laughs> so hang in there. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, um, follow us on Instagram at Conversations Radio. We appreciate that. If you like what you hear, or even if you don't, drop me a line, conversationspod at gmail.com. Don't forget all our podcasts, all soon to be 60 of them, are on Apple Podcasts. So go to the iTunes store. Search Conversations Radio, and voila, there they are, all tucked in, 59, soon to be 60 shows. Great, great show tonight. Our guest will be Leland Scalar, a legendary, legendary bassist. want to thank our guest from 59, that was Reagan Kramer, the young actress uh, you've known for her work on Amazon's Just Add Magic, and now uh, really up and coming. That podcast, again, ready to go. It's online. Check that out. And a huge show tonight want to thank you guys for tuning in. We are a little late, but uh, again, our guest, uh, Leland Scalar, bassist, was in the studio. Um, that pays. I don't. I'm cheap, so um, obviously he's going <laughs> to go that route. My co-host, uh, again, uh, equally thrilled, um, Stephen K. Peoples and I have been friends for quite some time. Stephen K. Peoples, a writer, uh, Grammy-nominated producer, as well as a broadcaster. He's on camera, off camera. We've done stuff together both on radio and TV, and it's always amazing, and I learn more about this guy every single day. Uh, a good friend. Glad to have him back. Welcome back, Stephen K. Peoples. Stephen, a pleasure. Hey, hey, Mike, it's great to be back with you again. I think you were last time we were doing a tribute to uh, David Bowie. That was a couple of years back. Yes, yes, right after he uh, checked out. That was uh, that was a, a good show. God, that went so fast since yesterday. And now here, here they are, both my um, co-hosts and my guests just kicking back. And again, I want to keep things interesting because it is late. I don't want our guests to fall asleep. And the same for you, Stephen. Uh, Stephen, again, you've uh, kind of kept yourself busy through the years in the music business, uh, both at Capitol and Rhino and, and what have you. Um, and it's been amazing. And I look at, you know, look at all your stuff, and I think I know you. And then I find stuff, and I had no idea. But you've got a real strong connection to Les Paul. I wanted you to talk about that just a second, if you can. Well, um, uh, I was uh, a freelance uh, writer in the early 90s and uh, went to see some friends at Capitol Records and was in introduced to the uh, head of the catalog department who expressed to me that he had a, a problem. He couldn't find anybody to write liner notes for a Les Paul box set. Did I know anybody who could help him out? And I said, uh, look no further, my friend. And I went into a five-minute monologue about who Les Paul was and what I thought he meant to the, you know, to the whole scene. And and so he said, "Okay, you got it." I wrote the book that accompanied the box set that Capitol released of wow. uh, Les Paul and Mary Ford's Capitol uh, recordings from uh, the late '40s through about 1958, early '58. And then and, you went to uh, in, then you went to Jersey to visit him. The, uh, the project involved going to uh, visit him at his studio in Mawa, New Jersey, which was actually a home uh, that was that was custom built for him and in the 50s. And it, it was more of a studio than a home. There were um, uh, 
many rooms that had uh, that were packed with instruments. Uh, and you know, he, he lived basically in two or three rooms and the kitchen, and that was about it. Wow. And there were maybe 30 rooms in the house. It was just amazing. Uh, we, uh, we started an, an interview in the actual uh, studio where uh, Mary recorded her vocals. He sat me down on the couch where she would sit, and we mic'd up, and we did a seven-hour interview that st started about midnight and ended at seven in the morning. And then he fed, he, he made SpaghettiOs for breakfast for us. <laughs> That's amazing. And our guest is and laughing then, as well. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I, that's just one of my stories. I'm sure Lee has a million more stories and, like that. And give, um, Stephen, give us your website, by the way. Right. Oh, yes. Uh, it's StephenKPeoples.com, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-P-E-E-P-L-E-S.com. And there are also links to my YouTube channel where I have a lot of interviews and, and other stuff that uh, might be of interest to the listeners too. Yeah, you've you've done you've done so much, and it's always a pleasure and an honor to work with you, um, both here on the radio and as cameraman number three. <laughs> so uh, definitely. Well, it was great to have you there. It was wonderful to have uh, have some friends in the studio, We're some friendly faces I mean, behind the cameras. I mean. Herb Peterson, uh, uh, Chris Hillman, Jesse Barish. I mean, we just we had wonderful, wonderful guests. Lori Andrews and Bart. Just, I mean, just phenomenal shows. And uh, again, those are still online too, so you can find those yes, on the web. Yes, all at uh, houseblendscv.com, and uh, we did sixty-nine half-hour-long uh, shows at SCV TV here in Santa Clarita uh, between twenty ten and twenty fifteen. Amazing. And. And we now, we were actually nominated for a Wave Award for the Chris Hillman um, Herb Peterson show, which is yeah. the, the uh, public television equivalent to uh, an Emmy. So that was that was very cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Let's bring our guest in though. And again, I I'm so thrilled. I'm glad we made this work work. We had scheduled this um, a while back, but during the fires and whatnot, and I lost power, it just didn't work out. So we decided, you know what? Let's just let's just reschedule it. And I'm glad we did because it's going to be a real good show tonight. My guest tonight is legendary bassist, legendary bassist, Leland Sklar, who has played with everyone. It's easier to say who he has not played with. Uh, he's just off tour with uh, Phil Collins. And again, Leland's known Phil for years. He also plays for people like uh, James Taylor. You heard of him, Stephen? Oh, yeah, I think so. Uh, JT, he's my wife's famous uh, favorite uh, favorite artist. Everybody's. And how about, uh, how about Jackson Brown? You don't know him, right? Yeah, no, never heard okay, of him. Yeah. Running on empty, yeah. The um, again, the list goes on. About twenty five hundred albums he's worked on. Somewhere in the world right now, there's a radio, a song playing, and Leland's on it. I'm, I'm sure of that. I want to say hi to, uh, to friend and legendary bassist Leland Scalar. Lee, how are you? I'm fabulous. You, you, I'm so happy to be here. I'm glad we finally got this all sorted out. I'm glad you were safe through the fires and all that. That was pretty scary times. And Stephen's our neighbor, so Stephen, you you were there as well, so you know the struggle with the fires. Yeah, it was kind of just up the street, but uh, we all we all made it okay, fortunately, with with a few exceptions. But this yeah, carry on this really time. But I'm glad we worked it out. And again, you are a busy guy. Obviously, you were on tour with um, Phil. Um, how'd the tour go? It was great. I mean, we when we started, we were going to do three cities, and it turned into two and a half years. Um, 
months. Wow. <laughs> pretty, pretty crazy. I mean, we did, we were all over Europe, South America, Mexico, Puerto Rico, the U.S., Australia, New Zealand. And um, who knows what the future holds. But as of right now, we are, we are officially, we officially finished about three weeks ago um, in um, Vegas. Uh, and, uh, and then it's back to reality. But, yeah. uh, we had a ball. We had a ball. And one of the coolest parts of it is uh, Phil's uh, son is playing drums with us. Yes. And when, when the tour started, uh, Nicholas was 16. And when we finished, he was 18. And he's playing like on, on, on a world-class basis. I mean, he didn't get the gig because he's Phil's kid. He's really, really a good drummer. And um, it's been such a kick to, you know, turn around on stage and, and look next to me and see somebody who I've known since he was born sitting there holding his own wow. up there on stage. So it's, it's been really, really cool. We had a ball. You're sandwiched between Collins's on stage then. Exactly. <laughs> I, 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 I'm the ham between the two pieces of cheese. And, Phil, and Phil's got some physical challenges now, obviously. And he did very, very well. He hung in there and he still hangs in there. Um, very, very, yeah. very, very positive. Very, very outgoing. And really, uh, I, almost, I almost want to say stubborn, which is probably something too. But uh, uh, he, he's... Tenacious. Yeah, tenacious, tenacious. exactly. Yeah. And he's making it work. And that's great. Um, it's unfortunate he can't drum anymore. But to have his son there... Uh, wow, that's a, tr a tribute in itself. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, you know? it was great. So let's talk here because uh, you um, obviously from Milwaukee. Um, yep. No, are you a Brewers fan or no? You know, um, I'm not a huge sports freak. You know, I, I enjoy watching a good game, and whoever does the best job deserves to win. I'm not one of these, uh, you know, ardent, crazy people about about sports. Um, my, I, we left, my family left Milwaukee when I was four and moved to, uh, California. So my, my roots aren't that deep. Like when I'm out with Phil Collins, Daryl Sturmer's the guitarist with us and, and he's been there his whole life and he's like, you know, the, the king of Milwaukee music scene. Um, sure. so. And you've told this story amazing uh, hundreds of times, but you know, the bass, not your first forte, your real first forte was uh, piano. You are classically trained. Yeah. Um, when I was uh, a kid, we had a piano in the house. My mom plinked around on it a bit, but um, there was no real serious playing going on. But my parents loved watching the Liberace show. And um, I would watch the show with them. And I absolutely fell in love with the piano and expressed an interest in it when I was about five. And we, I, they started getting me piano lessons and... I was became like the proverbial child prodigy where um, I won, like by the time I was eight, I had awards from the Hollywood Bowl Association and stuff. And by the time I was 12, I completely lost my mind and I was seeing <laughs> a drink and everything. But when I went into junior high school, when I was 12, I kind of went in with the attitude, here's your piano player. And uh, Theodore Lynn, who was the music teacher at Birmingham Junior and Senior High School, where sure. I went in Van Nuys, he said, look, we got a ton of piano players. We need a string bass player. And he pulled an old K upright out of the back room oh, wow. and put it in my hands. And I put it against me, plucked one note and said, sold. And I just thought I fell in love with just the vibration and, and just the feel of the instrument. And uh, 
he gave me rudimentary lessons on on it and I, I joined the orchestra and the jazz band and all that stuff and uh it was great uh it just changed knowing this man changed my life and i was really grateful to hook up with him uh a few years back we we reunited and spent time together before he passed from cancer and i was able to tell him how much he meant to me and how he changed my life and everything which is what Go ahead. You figure four strings is not that difficult. Now, I grew up in San Francisco. I played string bass in junior high school for three years. I loved it. Mm-hmm. And I, pl- I played a full size. I had to sit on a stool. I didn't pull the peg out, you know, cause it, but I liked the full size bass. That's when I played it. And yeah. again, it's, it's like a drug. It's a good drug. But uh, I, I get that because it's a very it's powerful when you're sitting there. Everyone's got these little, little baby basses on their chin, and you're playing the, the big one there. Um, yeah, it's a blast. So I totally yeah, get I it, it when you mention it. Stephen, musically inclined, drummer, right? Drums. Well, yeah, and you know that's why I have a particular affinity for bass players because I'm a drummer. Uh, I have, uh, uh, you know, you were talking about um, uh, earlier watching uh, Liberace and being sold on the piano at that point. Was it the performance or was it the piano? I think it was a little of all of it. I kind of, I mean, I loved the piano, but I also kind of lo- loved the shtick. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, he was elegant. He had that candelabra and his brother George would come out <laughs> and play violin. And, and, but he was, a, he was a good musician. Uh, and he really was very uh, kind of wide in his selection of music that he did. So it was a, uh, it was really one of these things that just captivated me. I really, I really fell in love with it because of him. Have you gone to his museum? And, no, I haven't. But the weirdest part of it is, is Liberace was also from Milwaukee, and I started out falling in love with this. And then a couple of years ago, I was inducted into the Wisconsin Music Hall of Fame, oh, wow. which Liberace is also in. So I've kind of gone this weird circle through all of this tied to Liberace. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, the first plunks on the bass, you know, just just kind yeah. of uh, got you. Uh, I, I understand that. And I, I think I understand where Mike is. It's a very visceral feeling. It goes right through you. Yeah. It, 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 it vibrates your bones, you know, it vibrates your soul. And I remember the first time I heard, um, I, I stuck my head inside when I was a kid inside a jukebox mm-hmm. uh, actually had a a, a seabird jukebox it had like a 12 inch woofer speaker and i heard heard bass sounds that you never heard on a yeah. transistor radio yeah and that it was a, a revelation to me and and then later when i started playing drums uh hooking up with bass players and, and locking into that 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 kind of uh, intuitive rhythm thing uh it just became a, a, a very special thing, and, and I, 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 would, I would like to talk with you a little bit uh, at length about uh, about your relationship with with drummers, particularly yeah. uh, Kunkel, you know, and what it was about uh, playing with Kunkel that that has uh, that, that connects you so so well that you've done it so often, and it seems so intuitive. Probably you by guys, now. you guys go way back too. You and Kunkel, I met. I met Russ when he was in a band called Things to Come uh, back around 1968. Wow. 
and uh, it was a passing uh, hello. Um, and so I was kind of, you know, it was it was cool when we started with James Taylor in 70, because when I walked in the room uh, and, and Russ was playing drums, there was already a slight familiarity because I had met him when I was in a band called Wolfgang and, and he was in Things to Come. But it, it's interesting. I mean, it, it's like he and I had this affinity from the first time we played together. It, it's it's really one of these things that it's really hard to put into words what the connection has been. But we've done projects where we were in separate rooms and only only hearing click and and seeing it like a chord sheet. Yet when we would go in and listen to a playback, we would nail everything together without actually having heard it. We, we kind of organically breathe the same when we play and and uh it's a unique relationship uh but i think when i've talked to people in the past i always kind of say one of the greatest blessings in my career has been the drummers i've gotten to work with in my life so i can i can look at everybody from the jim keltners and the jim gordons and um and the phil collins and jr and vinnie and all these guys and every one of them is, is so unique and so different, and it's required me to be a chameleon in order to work with them because because every one of them, just their downbeats are all different. <laughs> so you really have to kind of assimilate them. It's it's a little bit kind of like a, I really it's really impossible to put into words that relationship. It's really something very unique and very special. bunch of bunch of drummers. Uh, how about um, Jeff Porcaro? Well, Jeff, you know, it was weird. Um, uh, Denny Tedesco sent me uh, a thing he found from 30 years ago, actually sent it to me today. And Carlos Vega is the drummer on it. And, uh, and Carlos and I work together constantly. Uh, but when I talk about drummers in L.A., they all have such unique qualities. But if I mashed all of them into one guy, it would have been Jeff Porcaro. Yeah, um, Jeff was really one of my dearest friends and one of my dearest compatriots in the studio. We must have done at least 500 albums together. And um, the loss of him was really, really yeah. devastating. And then shortly after that is when we lost Carlos. I also yeah. lost Larry London almost at the same time. I do have a backstory yeah. on that. Um, I moved down in the cool. 80s. I moved down here. I uh, was all of maybe 20, 21 years old. I worked at an answering service, and Toto was one of the clients on the switchboard. They were one of the clients. This was in the days when they were when they were recording Africa, and mm -hmm. I, those guys were hopping. I mean, it was like around the clock. Lucather would call, and uh, David Page would call, and all these guys, and and uh, and I think David's sister would call. Um, but uh, yeah, and I mean, it was amazing to watch these guys or to, to watch these guys while they were doing this. Um, and they'd come in and get their mail and stuff, and uh, just the nicest guys. But um, yeah. yeah, folks don't realize what goes on behind the scenes. It's a lot of coordination, and um, oh yeah, yeah, they were they were they were amazing. You 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 um again you started off with the uh, with the with the stand up bass. When did you get your first bass guitar? How did that work out? Um, well, it was really frustrating because I really loved being in bands and, you know, trying to be heard with an upright bass, you know, when you're playing, even in jazz groups, 
there was really like nowadays there's some really good um, mic systems made for basses where you can sure. really be heard. But back then you were pretty much on your own. And so my father, uh, it must have been around 63 um, or so, um, took me to Stein on Vine, which was um, a music store in the basement of the Musicians Union on Vine Street. Oh, and wow. then Stein, Stein moved across the street from the Union and has a huge had it has a huge or had a huge music store. But my dad took me there and bought me a, a melody bass and a St. George amplifier. And that was my first Fourier into um, electric. And all of a sudden, I really felt viable because I could be heard. And uh, it, that was really a, a game changer for me. I mean, I did both because I still went around and played jazz clubs. Right. I was kind of I was kind of fortunate that coming from Eastern European stock, Russian Polish stock, I started shaving when I was really young. So every <laughs> summer, I every summer I would grow a goatee or an iron jaw or something so that I could go play in adult clubs and wouldn't get carded or anything like that. Wow. So I was playing the Lighthouse and you know joints like that, jazz clubs, and right. it, it was great. great. And your your parents are musically inclined as well, correct? Um, they they loved music. My dad played. He said he told me he said he played enough sax to make me cry when I was a baby. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, so there wasn't. He didn't do that much. But my mom would play a little bit of piano. But they were major music lovers, so they had a pretty extensive LP collection That's that great. would be everything from classical to Martin Denny to. You kind of name it. They had jazz and, and, and opera and classical. And we had, an, you know, just a nice old Magnavox uh, sure. hi-fi in the house. Yeah. So listen to a lot of music. I was exposed to a lot with them. That's how it starts, Stephen, for you as well. Yep. I mean, you've got a, a, I'm sure um, you probably can think of what your first record was you ever bought, Stephen. The, the first records that I heard were, were uh, Big Band Swing from the early 40s that was... That was uh, my my dad's particular uh, had a, had a particular affinity for that, and then uh, my mom was was into the crooners. She was a big Johnny Mathis fan, yeah, but great. you know it was for me it was all over when I saw Jerry Lee Lewis on American Bandstand kick the camp. <laughs> I think I was about seven years old, and and uh, I raised hell until they would until uh, my folks uh, took me to the local record store bought my first single, which was Great Balls of Fire. But, oh, wow. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's a whole other story. My folks were uh, were very supportive of my musical inclinations and, and inspirations, and, and where the twain actually met was the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, both, both my parents and, uh, and my si younger sister and I, uh, as a family, we all enjoyed the, most of the Beatles songs. The, of course, the folks didn't didn't like the more psychedelic stuff a little yeah. bit later on, but things like, uh, you know, Michelle and Eleanor Rigby resonated with them as, as much as they did with us. They, but, they had a profound impact on everybody. I mean, it was really remarkable. I was, I was a, like a really kind of a classical snob in, on a certain level and remained that way until the Beatles hit. And then all of a sudden it kind of, twisted my head around too right yeah i'd been taking jazz drum lessons for two years 
And then Ringo came along and everybody thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I knew otherwise, <laughs> but he was the right, he was the right drummer for that band for he sure. Made, Absolutely. Yeah. He left his mark, made it work. Since we're going all the way back, I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, how uh, the section came together. You had mentioned, you know, working with Russ early on with, uh, with, with James, but then, you know, where did, where did Korchmar and Dergy come into the picture? Well, when when we started with James, uh, the, the longest relationship going back with James is is, is Korchmar, because they were in the flying machine together. They knew each other when they were teenagers. Um, so when we started, when I started with James in 1970, the band was Russ, me, Danny Korchmar, and Carol King on piano. Uh, and nobody knew about Carol. I mean, she was a, a, a fine pianist for this music. and But her reputation as a songwriter, um, a lot of the people James was playing for weren't aware of the fact that she had written, like she was a hugely successful songwriter at 17 years old, working in the Brill Building with Jerry Goffin. And um, so when we started out, that was the band. And James and all of us, but James, especially, we encouraged her to do some of her music in the show and eventually opened the show doing locomotion and all these incredible songs of hers. And the next thing you know, she goes in the studio and cuts Tapestry. And, and so we're sitting there going, well, it's kind of weird having a side person in the band who has like the biggest record in the world right now. <laughs> so so Carol, Carol moved on. And I was in the studio doing an album with um, Tom Jans and Mimi Farina. And Mimi is, uh, was Joan Baez's younger sister. Right. And oh, wow. When, when, when I was doing that album, uh, I met the keyboard player who had been hired for that album, and that was Craig Durge. So I contacted Peter Asher, and I said, look, Carol's leaving, and I think I just worked with the guy who would be a perfect replacement for uh, Carol. And and Craig came down and um, it just felt it felt right with him. Everything wow. fell into place. So when we got on the road, uh, James was not that enthusiastic about doing you know extensive sound checks or anything. He pretty much came in, plugged in. If everything worked, then he he went off and did his own thing. Right. So so we would just sit and jam. We all you know, Cooch Russ and uh, myself and Craig just loved playing so hold on one second i've got my dogs are in a big knot here oh, <laughs> the basset I've got, hounds I've got, I've got two six-month-old basset hounds Aww. sitting on me right now um so um so we would just jam and uh, peter asher had a partner back in those days named nat weiss now nat weiss worked with brian epstein and he was pivotal in getting the beatles to america um, and Nat would be out on the road with us, and uh, he called us to his hotel room one night, and he said, I want you guys to hear something, and we said, cool. So we went up there, and he played us this thing, and we said, that's great. What's that? He goes, that was you guys at Soundcheck today. He said, you should really seriously think about maybe doing this, being a band. So we, because you know, we were really not even thinking about it. We were just killing time, and you know, we sure. loved playing, and we had time to do it and actually when we put it together uh james looked at us and we were thinking about all these different names and he goes well you guys are like the rhythm section why don't you just call yourselves the section 
And that's kind of how it all evolved. Now, the hard part of it was we got signed by Warner Brothers and kind of got signed um, sound unheard. And I think they thought because of our associations um, with people like, you know, the whole West Coast scene with Eagles and Poco and James and Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt and all this, they might have thought that they were getting kind of this West Coast folk thing. And all of a sudden, we show up with like a rock fusion instrumental band and they didn't know, you know, what to do with us. And um, so we ended up becoming kind of this, this cult band. We would open for James when we were on the road with James and we would open for Jackson when we were on tour with Jackson and play our set. And then, then after our set was over, then we'd come back out and play their show. And it was great. I mean, we, we had a ball with it. And, and through that, we, um, Matt Weiss was handling Mahavishnu Orchestra. So they put us out on the road with Mahavishnu Orchestra as their opening act, which got me to be friends with Billy Cobham. So when Billy yeah. got his record deal, he called me up and he said, I'm making a record. Would you like to come to New York and, and work on it with me? And that's how we ended up cutting Spectrum. Uh, you and uh, you yeah. and James Taylor met in college, right? Um, yeah, I was in college. He, I mean, he wasn't. It was when I was in college, but we weren't in college together. But I was in this band Wolfgang uh, when I was in college. And it, it, I mean, this all gets so convoluted. The drummer in our group was named Warren Pemberton, Bugs Pemberton. Now, Bugs was the drummer in Jackie Lomax and The Undertaker's who were rivals to the Beatles in England at the time. And Bugs was English, but he, he and Bryn Haworth was one of the guitar players moved to um, Los Angeles. So we, we had a house and we would rehearse all the time, play all the time. And uh, one of Bugs's friends was a guy named John Fishbeck. Now John Fishbeck owned Crystal Recording Studios in LA and he produced and engineered all the early Stevie Wonder stuff, you know, songs in the key of life sure. and all that. And he would come and hang out at our rehearsals. And at one of the rehearsals, he came with an old friend of his who turned out to be James Taylor. And James had just gotten back from England where he had done his first, he was the first artist signed to Apple. And uh, so he was hanging out and he played us some of his songs like Country Road and some of these things and we thought he was really good but we were a hard rock band and it yeah. wasn't you know our thing but we ended up actually doing a hard rock version of country road <laughs> so when J when james got offered the gig to play at the troubadour the first time um he remembered me from this rehearsal and he told peter asher and they called me and asked me if i was interested in playing this gig and Basically, I'm still on that gig. Sure. I'm 50, 50 years later. It's just this one happenstance meeting with a guy at a rehearsal place up in Shadow Hills at a house uh -huh. um, changed my life. I walked out of college after five years where I was a science art co-majors. And I was thinking about becoming a medical or technical illustrator. And uh, next thing I knew, I, you know, I, I had all all these credits and all these years, but no, but no degree. And I ended up hitting the road. And um, did you have any idea how but, big James was going to be? I mean, it, it, it was almost well, like overnight. I knew, he, I knew he was great. Yeah. I mean, when this guy sat down with you and played guitar and sang, you just went, 
Jesus Christ, this guy's really yeah. good. Even though it wasn't my kind of music, because I was like completely into Hendrix and Cream and <laughs> you know and all that. I mean, when we when we were doing Wolfgang, we were called Wolfgang because we were managed by Bill Graham, and Bill Graham's real name was Wolfgang. Then we right. decided what better what better way to suck up to your manager than name your band after him. <laughs> and, uh, and the very first time we ever walked out on stage as a band was at Winterland opening for Zeppelin. Sure. So, you know, it I was mean, like right out of the frying pan into the fire. And it was, it was great. It was a great band and the, the surviving members were all still friends. But um, James was like the perfect storm. I mean, he was yeah. like, it was ready for a change in what was going on musically. Right. And, and James was kind of like the cat who was really the perfect guy for this, this position. You were the perfect band for him because you were able to kind of translate his his softer stuff, but also rock it when he wanted to rock it. Yeah. And and I, I think, I think that also extrapolated to, uh, to Linda Ronstadt and to, to Jackson. You know, and and the the whole kind of L.A. crew that you guys backed up, there was there was a lot of simpatico musically and lifestyle yeah. wise also between all of them. It was very much a, a really special period yeah. of time that that was going on then, and all these because I remember sitting there. I used to do sessions with Don Henley when Don was playing drums, and I remember doing. The, a guy's album and, and Don came to me during one of the breaks and he says, do you think Eagles is a stupid name for a band? <laughs> I look at him and I said, I thought Beatles was a stupid name for a band. I said, just make good music, but they were just forming. And but there was just this whole vitality and energy. Going I will, on. I and, will say this though. I think the, 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 the relationship with you and James has been amazing. It's been a, a, a system that works. I've seen James twice in concert both times at the beloved Universal Amphitheater, God rest its soul. Yeah. Great venue. And what struck me, you were, you were on both shows. What struck me about that when James is on stage is how organized things are. The stage is, mm-hmm. just seems really neat and organized. And um, it, it's enjoyable to, to watch that. It's not all over the place. It's very, very, everybody's in their certain spot. And, it's, and, and I was really yeah. impressed with that. And it's, uh, again, an amazing configuration, an amazing band. I know that you've often credited him with uh, keeping you interested in music. I mean, for well, the most part. Also, James was a, a, a serious challenge to me as a bassist because James uh, is under, I, I think he's underappreciated as a guitarist. Every guitar player I know holds him in such esteem because of his technical skills as a guitarist. Right. But he always plays, he's got a thumb that's constantly playing bass. So when I started playing with him, I really had to kind of figure out what the hell I was going to do because the bass parts were already covered. And I was a huge McCartney fan, and I loved the whole melodic bass um, approach. So I really had to kind of think about what I was going to do with James, whether I was on certain things I would ape his, his parts, and other times I would do parts that wove all around James's parts. And I think had it been a guy who was just kind of like a strumming, flat-picking guitar player, I, I don't know whether things would have turned out the same for me, but I was fortunate enough to be with this guy who was such a deep well musically. Yeah. And, and songwriting was so creative and interesting that it afforded me 
uh, an incredible opportunity. And uh, I have to also really give major accolades to Peter Asher. Sure. Um, Peter, Peter, you know, produced and, and managed James. But when we did the first James Taylor album, which was, I think, One Man Dog, Peter insisted that all our names appear on the line, uh, on the back of the record where wow. the guys from the wrecking crew and all those guys before us, um, nobody knew when they were listening to a Sinatra record that that was the same guys that were on the association that were on the beach boys that were, on, I mean, they were really unsung heroes. So when the singer songwriter movement, took off after James was suddenly on the cover of Time magazine and all this, they looked at his records and they saw Lee Sklar and, and, and Russ Kunkel and Danny Korchmar and sure. Craig Durkee and all this. And next thing they know is they're saying, well, if they're good enough for that guy, let's get him for our project. And the phone started ringing off the hook with us really not knowing what the hell we were doing. I mean, I hadn't really any studio experience or anything before James. So we were kind of learning while we were on the job. Well, you kind of kind of learn fast before anybody can call you on it. Yeah, exactly. And you also, if you don't know what you're doing, you certainly don't let them know it. Exactly. My, my favorite quote of yours, by the way, Leland, I heard this before, that you're not a noodler. You will bring in maybe two, two instruments at the most and get it done. You don't want to bring in like you don't want to like bring in a, a a load of equipment into a studio. You bring the one tool for the job and you get it done, which is great. Well, yeah, I mean, I, if I know I have to have you know a couple of different bases or something, or if I need some pedals, I bring things. But uh, you know, I, I I I'm pretty focused on things, and I also have considered in my almost my entire musical life, I'm a song person. Right. It's, I'm not a, like a jam guy or anything like that. Um, I really love to listen to a great song and then figure out how I fit in it and uh, figure out, you know, I love crafting parts uh, for songs. You know, when people say, I'll oh, come down to the club and we'll just jam. I kind of go, yeah, you know, whatever. I mean, it's not one of those things I do with great enthusiasm. But boy, to sit down and have somebody like James... Uh, pull out his guitar and play mill worker or something like that. Yeah. And then you listen to this and you're trying to figure out, you know, how can I contribute to this and make this better or justify my, my reason for being involved in this. Um, that's when I come musically to life. And then the, the, the next level is when the red light comes on. I love recording. And to that point, whether it's James Taylor or whoever it is, you're in there, you're actually part of the band. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things that I always look at um, every gig I do. Every time I get hired by somebody, I've joined a band. I don't treat it like I'm hired help. I really feel like even if I'm only going to see them for one day, I, I treat it as though I'm part of this band and this project. And, and I want to walk out of there feeling that I've done the best job I possibly can. Now, I go, you know, I've gone through periods where you go, God, I wish I'd have been in a hit band. I mean, and I always kind of throw out somebody like Flea and I go, man, all the guys ever had to do is chili peppers. And that's not to denigrate chili peppers right. at all, but you know, to be in a band and just do your own music and, and refine your own stuff where I've had to join like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bands throughout my career. And 
and go through different genres and styles all the time. Now, to me, it's exciting and exhilarating, but it's also, it's an exhausting, being a studio player, it's an exhausting existence because you also show up at the studio and you don't have the luxury of not feeling it that day. Or if you had your band going and you go, hey, it's just not happening today, let's yeah. get a pizza and maybe go see a movie or <laughs> just come back tomorrow. You don't have that luxury as studio players. You've got to come out with product at the end of that day. You got to bring. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Go ahead, Steve. Uh, can I, Mike? You don't mind uh, if I uh, toss in a couple of studio questions? Go here. ahead. Yeah, absolutely. That's why he's here. Uh, yeah. Who's your Who's your favorite producer? The guy that orders lunch and puts down his plastic. <laughs> Perfect. That's exactly what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> Yeah, it's there's been so many different producers. I mean, there's, um, you know, Peter. I mean, I loved working with Peter Asher. Peter was really great. He's very intuitive about songs, and uh, there's been quite a quite a few that I've really enjoyed working with over the years. Um, no, but for the most part, I think the really great producers really know how to put together the right band. And then they sit back and they throw out their ideas and stuff when they feel, but they kind of let the band go with it. You mentioned uh, early on your classical background, then, you yeah. know, section was, was kind of jazzy, you know, fusion. And, yeah. and then you got involved with some country rock a little bit later on. I know you've done tons of sessions with country people like Susie Bogus and Reba McIntyre and Dolly Parton yeah. and and uh, Christofferson and, and George Strait and all those guys. But I, I wanted to ask a little bit about the, the country rock beginnings, the beginnings of country rock, because I think <laughs> you were there at, at the beginning of it. What, yeah. What, that would be Poco, Eagles, and, you know, even maybe some birds. A yeah, little bit Burrito in. Brothers. Burritos, for yeah. sure. And, and, and then uh, later on, you worked on uh, Gene Clark's No Other album. In yeah, 1974. I'm so thrilled that that is suddenly being reissued and given a new life because that was such a unique uh, pro album and kind of just disappeared on the wayside because of a lot of reasons. And what the idea, people were just talking to me today when I was at work today saying, oh man, I heard some stuff from no other. It's unbelievable. What was so unique about it? From your standpoint, I mean, from our from our standpoint, we can think of. But from your standpoint, as a player and a musician, what was what was really unique about the sessions, the musicians, the the, the project, Gene? What was really? Yeah, it, was, it was a little of all of that. I mean, they it was really kind of a, an almost an experimental album on some levels because uh, there, there's one I haven't heard it in a long time, but one of the tracks on there, I think I've, I've got six bases on the track oh, wow. um, i was la layering all kinds of parts and stuff so they didn't have to do any other overdubs people some people said we thought those were strings and then we realized it was the bass we thought that was a guitar lead no that was another bass and uh but one of the funniest moments of the whole album was we did it at village recorders and um it was it, it was a tough album but like jesse ed davis was on it and some a really interesting cast of characters and gene was really really amazing and i was a huge birds fan so it was really great to get to work with him but cocker was working in the next studio 
And Cocker was, uh, it was back in the days when he was, you know, kind of raving. <laughs> and um, he came into our studio and I, I don't remember which song it was that we were doing, but um, it was one of these things where we were all, as we were doing it, kind of looking at each other going, this is the take. I mean, you just had a gut feeling this was the one. And Joe was, had come into the control room and was sitting behind the console just bobbing back and forth, totally into it. And just in the middle of it, slams his hand down on the talkback button and let out one of those cocker screams, blowing our <laughs> headphones off of our heads, jeans breaking down the vocal booth to get to Joe to beat the crap out of him. <laughs> Joe's people drag him back to his studio and lock the door so Gene can't get in. And we listened to the tape, and you would have sworn somebody just took a razor blade and sliced the tape, the cut when that scream hit was you couldn't hear the scream but we all stopped instantly it was it was so alarming oh uh, it was just one of the things you just go wow this is this is just nuts but it, it was one of those records when you listen to it when it was all done we all just went this is really a special project and we were all pretty disappointed that um, things through the label and different problems kind of buried the album. Other things were going on. And, and all of a sudden, there's this kind of renaissance of it coming back. So that's great. But when it came to my country stuff, um, I used to do a lot of work with the, the producer, Jimmy Bowen. So yes. I, would, I would end up doing everything from Anthony Newley to... Um, She's, I mean, all kinds of Dean Martin. Wow. You, you sort of name it. I mean, he did all that stuff. Well, he moved to Nashville and took over Capitol Records in Nashville. And he called me and he said, would you have any interest in coming down here and doing projects? And I said, oh, I'd love to. This was around 1980, I think. And so I would go down for five days of tracking at a time. And it was, you know, early Vince, early Reba, like you said, um, Patty Loveless, Susie Boggess, Marty Stewart, um, uh, all these people in the beginnings, um, you know, George Strait. I mean, I did like all my exes live in Texas and Great all song. that stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. and I became, you know, I would go down like every few weeks and, and do another album. And I ended up probably doing about, you know, three, four hundred albums in Nashville. And uh, never wanted to live there. I'm a West Coast guy. Yeah. So I wasn't about to live there. Plus, guys yeah, but would the, ask me, the food. How come you don't want the food? Well, they would say, how come you don't live in, don't want to move to Nashville? And I'd say, I might consider if you can learn how to make a left turn. <laughs> if you go down there, and these knuckleheads cannot figure out how to make a left turn. Like when the arrow goes off, you can still go if there's a green light. But wow. they just sit there, and I just pisses me off so, so i did about 10 years of albums down there and then um then got really busy you know back in la and some of the producers like jimmy were retiring at that point i did a lot with tony brown and i also did a lot of contemporary christian like stephen curtis chapman and second wow. chapter of acts and avalon and all these groups i think they had hoped to heal me but that never worked yeah i was gonna say that's uh, well, yeah. you know, they asked too much. When, uh, when we started, you guys uh, uh, were talking about uh, wrapping up sessions with the immediate family. Yeah. Like a full circle thing with some of the section guys now. So you have a new project. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, 
it's Danny Korchmar got a record deal with uh, a label called Vivid Records in Japan. And when it came time for him to go in the studio, he thought, well, why don't I just call all my old friends and have them come down? So um, we got Jackson Brown Studio Groove Masters in Santa Monica. And it was and Cooch had moved from New York back to L.A. And he was living near a guy who I had worked with before named Steve Postel. And they were living near each other and they hooked up and started doing some writing together and some gigs together. So Steve got involved with it. But then um, Russ and myself and Wadi Wattel came in and we did that album, went to Japan and toured uh, over there with it and then started getting interest here and started doing gigs here in L.A., and uh, a week ago, we were in the studio and ended up cutting 17 tracks for a new wow. album of all new material. Jeez. But it's we told everybody that we at the time we were a cover band that only plays originals. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it was like because Cooch had written a, songs like Dirty Laundry and All She Wants to Do Is Dance and Machine Gun Kelly. Sure. And Waddy, Waddy was deep in with, with Zevon, so he had done like Johnny Strikes Up the Band and yeah. Werewolves of London. So we were doing all these songs the way the guys heard them in their minds rather than the artists that did them. And now we've written a whole pile of new material and we're, we've got the new album being finished up and then we're going back to Japan. We're doing a rock cruise with like Roger Daltrey oh, wow. and Roger Hodgson and a bunch of people going, uh, I think in February from Fort Lauderdale to the Caymans. It's oh, one my. of those you yeah. know, cruise ship things. And, um, and actually the, one of the most exciting things is, um, Denny Tedesco did the movie, the wrecking crew as yes. homage to his father. Well, Denny Tedesco is now making a movie about us. Oh, Good. wow. And, it's they've done a ton of interviews and they and they came and filmed us at Les Paul's Iridium in, in New York. And we're going to start doing our own um, parts of the movie soon. But uh, it's really kind of it came out of the blue. I mean, I Denny is a is a, is a dear friend. I worked ton. It was it, it was a very strange experience for me in 1967. I was in a band called Group Therapy being produced by Mike Post. And we we did our album at United Recorders, which is where I was today. It was the first studio I'd ever been in. Oh, I wow. still go there and work and freak out. But um, I'm sitting in the window uh, of the studio looking out, and I'm looking at Hal Blaine playing drums and Carol Kay playing bass and uh, Dennis Budimir and Nectil and, and Melvoin and all these guys. And I'm thinking to myself, they wouldn't let us play on it. We only sang on our record. And I'm thinking, I could never do this. And three years later, I was working with these guys every day. So when the Wrecking Crew movie came out, they, Denny and those guys would have me come as I was one of these transitory players who worked with those guys, but then was part of this next movement. And so it's a trip now to, to suddenly have them making a movie about us. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of sitting here just going, wow, this is, this is quite a trip. Well-deserved. Yeah, well-deserved. I'm going to back up just a bit. How did Jackson, sure. how did Jackson Brown find you? Um, I can't remember who called us, but the weirdest thing was I remember when I got the call to do the session. We did it at Crystal Recorders with a producer named David Orshoff. 
And I, in my mind, I assumed he was going to be black. I mean, a name like Jackson Brown just did not sound like a skinny little white guy yeah. to me. So we showed up. And um, as soon as he pulled out his guitar and started playing his songs, we, we just went, oh, man, this guy's good. And, uh, and it, so but I don't remember who actually made the call to, to get us there because we were going around the clock. I mean, it right. was really the most kind of golden age fertile period. So um it was uh, it was just like on and on and on. And uh, I feel really so fortunate that that was the period I ended up getting into. Running on Empty, obviously huge and an equally huge backstory. This was done, I mean, it almost sounds like a train wreck, but it, it worked. And the end result yeah. was a fantastic song. How was that experience for you? You must have said, like, what are we doing? I mean... Well, the thing was, we were on tour, and we had Greg Ladani out with us engineering, and we had a remote truck, and it was almost like the album was incidental to the touring, because we were just doing our gigs, and they were recording it all, but we weren't really thinking about this as though we were recording. We were just thinking about we were on the road doing a tour, and um, it was great. The band was incredible. Uh, the songs were great, and it was just fun, and it got so nuts i mean they were recording on the bus we would go into a holiday inn and and book a room take the room apart we would like take the bed apart and stand up the mattress and the box and the box spring and that would be like the drum booth jackson would be in the bathroom singing i had a little univox bass amp and i'd have it under the desk um it was sort of, it was really guerrilla recording and, meanwhile you know, there's, there's and, other guests in the hotel as well so obviously that's an issue. Yeah, we were, yeah. I mean, it was it was just really just it was so much fun because it was a bunch of friends out on the road having this really great adventure. But all the shows were great, you know. And and I had known like David Lindley from when he was in Kaleidoscope and seeing those guys opening for the Mothers of Invention and stuff. And so to be out there with with Lindley and and Russ and and Cooch and and Craig and Rosemary Butler and all these people. It was a, it was an amazing experience with everybody. But the, at the end of each day, it was really about the concerts and not the recording. Uh, to me, the recording became almost an ancillary part of the tour, even though that represented the tour at the end of it. It was really still the joy of being out playing for people that made it. But it's also one of the few, to me, live albums that, everything's live on that record there's so many wow. live albums that yeah. the only thing left is the audience at the end of it the guys bands go back in the studio and replace everything yeah uh, and this was really man what you hear on that record is what went down that's crazy that's absolutely crazy yeah and it was um, what a career I he's love had. And you guys reunited recently at an, an award show i know rosemary was there with you guys and you did it together and yeah, it was the Tech Awards at um, uh, at the NAMM show. And Jackson, I think, was, I, I forget, he got like the Les Paul Award or something, and they gave the section like a Lifetime Achievement Award. And really one of the tragedies of the whole thing was the thing that got us all nominated uh, for this thing. And the real force behind it all was the fabulous producer-engineer Ed Cherney, 
and Ed just passed away recently. Oh, yeah. yeah. And we're all still in shock over that. He and his his wife Rose, who used to be the manager of the record plant. Sure, um, right. Um, you know, to lose him was really absolutely shocking. A young guy, but just you know, cancer's unforgiving. Yeah. And uh, but uh, but they were important in getting that. So it was fun getting up and playing "Running on Empty" with Jackson. Oh yeah, and stuff <laughs> at, at that show. You you and, uh, and it was great. It but it was great last week when we were we did the new um, immediate family album at his studio, and he came and was hanging out one of the evenings with us. So, I mean, everybody's still friends. And that's the important thing is after 50 years, we're all still buds and love being together and playing together. Through the years, yeah. you recorded at many studios. Obviously, a lot of those studios not here anymore. Pro Tools yeah. came along and they, they, they shut down like crazy. And some, some hung on as long as they could. I know, I know that Sound City was one of the last ones to close here in Los Angeles. I mean, when yeah. really it was a, a, a pit. But uh, they, uh, everybody recorded there. Uh, thank God for Dave Grohl who rescued the Neve, the, the console. Yeah, uh, because no that would have been that would have been parted out and it would have been destroyed. Because that you think about the people that recorded on that console, that's amazing. That and, should uh, be console should that, be that console. <laughs> that, that console should be bronzed. Oh yeah, well there, it's yeah. getting it's getting good use at, uh, at at Grohl Studio, and I think the engineer yeah. I think the engineer from Sound City went over there as well. Um, yeah, Sound City was a great room. I, I loved working over there. Did a lot of projects, and most of the time, everybody liked it because uh, Hogley Wogley's Texas Tyler sure. Texas Barbecue down the street. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. And you mean Record Plant, uh, the one in Sausalito went through its drama. A lot of different stories about yeah. that. Um, the government owned it for a while, and then they sold it. Now it became a, it became like a a multi use office. Now and there's talk of trying to get it. Re uh, preserved as like a landmark. I know McF yeah. I think Mick Fleet was involved and whatnot, but Wally Hyders, um, as they came, my mom worked for KGO TV on Golden Gate Avenue. Hi uh, Hyders was there on Hyde Street. I remember walking in one day and I said, I want to get a tour. I was like all of 17 and got to go in a studio where they recorded Miracles, where Starship recorded Miracles. And that was like just amazing. Wow. And again, wow. Hyders, Hyders, not Hyders anymore, it's something else. And it just... Well, most of the rooms are gone. I mean, there's a few. I mean, there was talk for a while that they were going to turn the Capitol Records Tower into condos. Um, you know, I mean, it's just horrifying. But thank God. But like they like with Henson Studios, the fact yeah. that that Henson bought A and M and the studios are still intact. I work there really regularly. But I th we were just talking about that um, today about all the studios like gold star and all these rooms. I mean, this city used to be loaded with great studios and uh, so many of them are gone. The real estate just became too valuable and everybody was building, you know, the, the, the technology got so easy that everybody had their home studios. So they weren't coming into the studios anymore. And uh, you it's a different world. You recorded with Helen Reddy. I am woman. And that studio is yep. gone now. I think that was, it's, that's long gone. That was Sun West. Yeah, at Sunset Western, and that that studio's gone. It's just um, like what's like what's a spicing slicing block? You know, no one knows. You know, but um, well, it's just it's just sad. But I mean, I understand the fact. That, I mean, if a place isn't making its nut, and the owner of the property gets offered a ton of money just to get out of there so they can sure. put up an office building or a parking lot, they do it. But the sad part is. And like more and more now, I'm working on projects where there's 
instead of just me going to somebody's house and overdubbing bass on something, there's actually full band projects going on. There's even a lot of work being done to tape again. And they're and they're pressing vinyl again. So it's yeah. gone this big pendulum swing. But the thing that's missing at the end of the day is a lot of the studios. So the few that are really still viable and they are booked around the clock. Yeah. Well, back in the day, and Stephen, you know this as well, the studios really were a big part of the music business. I mean, they played a really instrumental role um, in the business as a whole, well, I think. Um, well, absolutely. I mean, ca you mentioned Capitol Studios. That's a, a case in point. Uh, the, the, all the business was in the, uh, in the top, uh, you know, 12 floors. But the ground floor was the studio. That was really where everything was, uh, was birthed, if you will. And, and, yeah. uh, and but but the studios having um, or the record companies having their own studios was was a, a matter of economics and control really. Yeah, it was. I, I, no, you mentioned you mentioned uh, speaking of Wrecking Crew. Uh, let me throw you a curveball. There there was another session that you did uh, back in the uh, was 1981 with the Big Blue Wrecking Crew. Yeah, for those guys, oh it was the Dodgers after they won the World Series and they cut a, a version of the uh, Queens. We are the champions. Yep. Yeah, and, like that'll uh, happen so again. You were on that session. <laughs> what what was that session like? Well, it was great. Yeah, you know, we did it at Sound Labs, which was Armin Steiner's studio, which is Caddy Corner from the Capitol Tower. Was uh, Caddy Corner? I, I don't think it's long gone, but um, it was like the day after they had won the World Series, so they were all kind of hammered and uh it, it, this friend of mine who, who another sad story who just passed away recently chris bond was the producer of it and he also produced when i worked with hall and oats and did like rich girl and all that stuff he was the producer on that stuff um but it was um jeff Picaro was playing drums on it and so but these guys weren't singers so i mean they were they were just kind of going nuts in there and they wanted to play like fanny may and all these things yeah. it was like a bar band <laughs> but they brought in they brought in helen dell who was the dodger organist yes helen she, she, oh she played God. on it and stuff um, it was wow. uh, jerry royce and, and steve yeager and yeah, rick uh, monday, rick monday yeah. jay johnston and jay johnstone right right those four guys but it was cool. I had a, a, I have a base that I call Frankenstein that we built in 73. And um, it was just a blank older body. And when we did that session, they were signing baseballs and stuff. And I said, hey, why don't you guys sign my base? And they all signed the base. And that got the, all the autographs started on this base, which has about 400 on it now. Wow. Yeah. But it was funny. I never clear coded it. So names would get rubbed off. And as it was like weird, every time like one of those guys' names would get rubbed off the base, they would get dropped from the team. And I bumped into <laughs> Jaeger one day and I told him that. And he said, rub it, rub it, because he wanted to move out. <laughs> but it was fun. Well, and then they, they went on like the, you know, Tonight Show or something right. and, and, Remember that, and yeah. did it. Oh, yeah. Well, they, I, they, I, they, I, was, I was at Electra Asylum in the PR department when that was released. Oh, and, cool. uh, you know, I was uh, working at Electra on uh, La Cienega Boulevard. Uh, it was the Joe Smith era. Yeah. And, you know, Jackson and, and you know, Joni and uh, Linda and 
people would be just walking in and out of the building, no big deal. But when these four guys came into the building to meet the staff, everything shut down. Oh, yeah. Wow. No, you know, everybody was, was there with their cameras and, you know, getting autographs and stuff. And these four guys just, just uh, had a ball with all of the staff. And, and uh, there, there's a, it's a funny story that, that um, uh, Jerry Royce sat on Joe Smith's Xerox machine and took multiple copies of his butt. Oh wow! And, and, and handed handed the Xeroxes out to uh, to the ladies and the staff. That's it was awesome. another time, y'all. It was another time. That's but yeah, awesome. Jerry uh, Jerry's a funny cat. I re I really like all those guys. We all sort of became stayed friends after that. I man, talking of Electra Asylum, though, that studio on La Cienega was such yeah. a fun place to work with all the Indian bedspreads hanging all over and stuff. Wow. I mean, it was like, man, that, I loved working there. It was behind the asylum door. Uh, yeah. Was, you know, uh, you, speaking of the doors, you worked on the Full Circle album. Did you record there at Electra Studios there or where was that recorded? I think it was a it was a different studio, but I don't I can't recall at this point. I think it was up on Sunset. I don't remember the room offhand though but it was the album they did after jim died right and um yeah i can't remember what room that was in i kind of remember you know the, the project just because i'm you know i'm being you know from la and stuff and seeing those guys on the sunset strip it was you know fun to walk in the studio and see those three guys sitting there and being and you know being a part of their project was was pretty yeah. cool we are getting short on time but i do want to mention warren zivon um, because uh, uh, you yeah. worked on on uh, Johnny Shears of the band and I think another track as well. Um, my God, I miss him so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. I find myself I find myself going on YouTube and looking at the old uh, Letterman episodes because he and Letterman were very very close. I know that yeah. uh, that on a whim Warren would just sit in with the band, you know, with with, with Paul. Oh, yeah. Go in. Um, but obviously, um, you know, his style and his of his music is is a little out of the norm um it's very unique he was he was quirky yeah but um what was that experience because obviously that that excitable boy the album um did fantastic it really did um what was that vibe like because obviously this is before he got sick yeah i mean it was great because warren was as you say he was unique he was incredibly smart incredibly interesting uh his approach to his songs was really just just off off in in left field a bit and um and it made you think in a different way but he was just a good cat to be around i really like warren a lot and it and was everyone, heartbreaking for all of us when he got sick everyone worked on that album i think mick fleetwood was involved and i think wadi Wattel was involved yeah. you were there i mean it was yeah. one of the it takes a village um and it, truly and it, the album was just wonderful well, the thing that was great about, especially that whole period, was there was a camaraderie within the music community. So that you had, like, when you were in the studio, guys were, and women were dropping by, just hanging out, and sometimes they'd show up, and you'd, you right. know, like, David Crosby and Graham Nash would walk in to a James Taylor session, and they'd say, well, we're doing Mexico, why don't you, let's sing, you guys sing background. I mean, it was like, it was such a casual <laughs> thing it was an open door policy amongst everybody so there was a lot of um giving and a lot of sharing 
uh, within the community where as time went on, people became more possessive about their scene and, you know, kind of coveting their little spot in it. And this whole period was just something, something that's really hard to describe. It was really magical. And uh, like I've said, I feel so fortunate that I was of the age right. and situation that I got to be a part of this whole thing. That being said, you worked a lot of young talent as well. Vanessa Carlton, um, yeah. Thousand Miles, Ron, uh, Ron Fair produced that and really kind of rescued that. I guess there were some issues early on when that, when it was, it just wasn't jiving, and he kind of came in and, and kind of made it right, and then turned out really good. Oh, that was a great! Re- I, I I loved that. But we did that over at Hanson, and I remember walking into the studio, and I see this little, it's kind of a squirt of a girl, yeah. sitting over there at the piano, just burning through Chopin practicing. Yeah. And I was going, this is going to be cool, and and it was, and and Ron was an interesting guy to work with in the studio but i you know i i really love when i go in the studio and and especially if it's like a young artist um you know like in their 20s or something it's really great to tap in to what their you know what their interests are their approach to their music and what they're listening to and how they're doing it 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 keeps it all fresh i always feel like i'm sort of in the peter pan business you know, I mean, yeah. you know, you, you you never really have to grow up. The, the, the less you grow up, kind of the better off you are. And then there are those who don't, don't have a clue. And you just want to get up and walk out. I mean, that's got to be frustrating. It's like, hey, what's I mean, happening here? It's life. Yeah. You know, I mean, I look at, I look at everything every day, like when I, I get to do something. Like today was great. Um, I've been a, a fan of Flight of the Concords for a long time. And Brett McKenzie is so talented. I did like the Muppet movies with him. He did the music for those. And he's been doing this solo record. And I think we're now finished. The four tracks we cut today, I think, are the end of this album. And he's from New Zealand. They're from New Zealand. And um, it's just, you know, I just kind of look around the room and I'm with really great players and really great friends playing really great music. And I go, what the hell else is there? And they bought us lunch. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. yeah, it's like whip out done that plastic. Deal. Yeah, exactly. Can't beat that. No, you get a meal. Yeah. Uh, any <laughs> any parting shots there, Stephen? Because we are running late here. I know it's past Leland's bedtime. Oh um, yeah, that's that's yeah. Yeah, you're talking to uh, an insomniac. Are you really? Yeah. Oh no, yeah. It's just been a, a great pleasure. We could probably go on for another three hours. I have another three hundred questions to ask, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, for another time, but uh, yeah, if this does you, well, and- let's if this does well, let's do volume two. I'm gonna have I'm you on again you. for sure. I'd like to have you and Waddy on together. It'd be great. It'd be um, really fun. Waddy's got yeah. Love- we'll look forward. We'll look forward to uh, hearing the next immediate family record. When that when's that gonna drop? Um, not sure. It'd probably be you know, early in the year. Right now, right now we've got all the basic tracking done. They're gonna go. Um, start, I think, on Monday at Steve Postel's house and start. Uh, we're going to start scrutinizing everything and then the guys are going to start working on vocals and, and solos and stuff. Um, but we got the, the main core of all these songs um, in the can now. And um, when, when do you think this is going to air? This will air on uh, here on Friday. It'll go up Friday. Okay, because uh, the the immediate family is playing at Bogies in Westlake Village on December twenty second. Oh wow! We're doing two two shows that night. I think six and eight thirty or something like that. Got a lot of friends okay. to play there. A lot of the a lot of the we'll, we'll be, 
a lot of the Ambrosia guys play there and uh, Burley it's Drummond. A, it's and, yeah, a nice it's room. A little venue, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a cool room. And they have good grub. Yeah, that's all about the grub. It all hinges on food for you. I noticed that. That's um, the thing. Yeah. But Leland, a, an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, we will stay in touch and we will have you on again for sure. And I uh, would well, love, love to see you play live. It would be great. Oh, it's great. And it's really been great hanging with you guys, too. I'm glad it worked out this way, um, finally. Any, anytime. Stay thanks there. Again, Folks, that's a wrap. Again, I know it's uh, late here. And again, thanks for listening on the East Coast. Man, it's like 2 in the morning there. They're going to hate me. But again, now this show, if you missed any part of it, because uh, I know it is late, it'll be up on podca- on uh, Apple Podcasts this Friday. So again, Leland Scalar and Stephen K. Peoples, thank you so much. Thank you. Folks, thank like, you, Mike. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram at Conversations Radio. This is Conversations Radio. So long. Mm-hmm.